Hi there, I'm Martin Dillon, and this is the Legal Questions Podcast. It's a podcast where I discuss questions from listeners that are both valid and about law. Why valid? Because a question like, uh, what's your bank details and password, is not something I'm going to talk about on, uh, on the podcast. With me right now for the first podcast, I've got a prop. What kind of prop, Martin? Why do you think you need that? What kind of professional are you? Well, this is a baby who may or may not comment on the content of the podcast as we go. We'll just wait and see. Hey, look, this being the first podcast, I haven't actually uh, received any questions yet, (laughs) so I'm going to make something up. Where did you get that idea from? From the law. Um, But look, if you do have a question that you want to ask about law, that you want me to talk about, um, get in touch. The email is ask at questions.legal, the website questions.legal. Well, why couldn't it just be legalquestions.com? That would be a good question to ask. That would have something to do with uh, (laughs) copyright and intellectual property. And uh, and finance, <laughs> whether or not a you know a fledgling podcast could uh, could justifiably buy out legalquestions.com that nobody's doing anything with, by the way, um, but they will sell it for a a, uh, a price that they might describe as reasonable. I might describe as absolutely absorbent, but. Uh, Anyway, questions.legal was wide open, so I just snatched that one, and um, and we're away. Aren't we, prop baby? Yes. Look, um, so there's a contact form on the questions.legal podcast, and there's also a disclaimer. Because <laughs> it wouldn't be a legal podcast without a disclaimer, would it? And I'll read it to you. I'll read it to you right now so I get it right. This podcast provides general information. It's not legal advice or a substitute and should not be relied upon as such. No decision, action, or I think I said inaction. So I've got it both ways. No decision, action, or inaction should progress without taking specific advice from a lawyer first. And please see the full terms and conditions at questions.legal for more. Uh, so let's see, we've covered the introduction. I'm Martin Dillon. Oh, and Prop Baby. Uh, we've covered the contact, we've covered the disclaimer. Oh, if you'd like to actually read something rather than listen to it, you can uh, buy a book that I've put out. It's all about civil litigation, though. What's civil litigation? It's when you go to police complaining about a grievous wrong that's been imposed against you and they say well that's a civil matter this is the police we're not going to deal with it you have to just uh go to the court sort it out yourself and pay a lawyer pay a lawyer and get legal advice um to go and sort it out for you in the courts we're not going to do anything because of course the um the police are a great resource especially if you have a, a kind of a marginal call is it a civil matter could it be a crime um if they take on a case for you, uh, you know, doing the duty as police, I'm not suggesting anything corrupt or anything like that. 
Uh, but if they do actually take on a case, they do all the investigative work and they endeavour to prove the charge. If they lay a charge at the end of the investigative work, they try and prove the charge beyond reasonable doubt, which is a very high evidential threshold, higher than the civil standard, in New Zealand at least. Um, you should You should probably... Uh, realize that, yeah, the jurisdiction that I am uh, familiar with and that most of my contact uh, content is directed towards, the jurisdiction just so happens to match my accent, New Zealand. Oh, gee, where was I? I was talking about the police. Yes, anyway, in New Zealand and in most uh, common law countries around the world that I know of, um, the civil standard is diff uh, different than the criminal standard. So beyond reasonable doubt standard to convict someone of a crime. And um, the civil standard is on the balance of probabilities. So a judge sort of weighs up the case. And if something is 51% uh, more likely than something else in a civil case, then the, uh, uh, the party... Uh, who has the 51% wins the, the case, or at least wins the point. Now, prop baby's gone to sleep, so maybe that says something about, I don't know, the content. Should you really be listening to this? Well, I'll find out. I suppose you will too. Uh, getting a little bit too metaphysical here. Uh, what was I saying? Oh yeah, that's right. I've written a book about civil litigation, in New Zealand at least. Uh, there's a lot of it that is cross-applicable into other common law jurisdictions, uh, English-speaking jurisdictions at least, that are based on the uh, based around, I should say, the laws of England. So Australia, Canada, US to, um, to some extent. Readers from those jurisdictions would get some benefit from the book, but uh, not the stuff that's specifically about New Zealand law. So uh, the title of the book is Civil Litigation for Non-Lawyers, the People Who Are Not Lawyers, A Plain English Guide to Civil Cases in New Zealand. So it's about civil cases in New Zealand specifically, as has some applicability elsewhere. Now... Let's make up some questions to talk about. I think a good question to start off with for the first episode would be a question about talking, or a question about being questioned, talking to the police. What should you do? Well, if you uh, jump around the internet a little bit, there are a whole lot of um, articles, YouTube videos and the like by lawyers that talk about not talking to the police. And that could be very, very good advice if you're someone that they might be minded to charge with a crime. However, the police aren't going to start to do their job unless someone contacts them and says, Help! Police! Um... My neighbours called me a bad name. I mean, the thing about so many of the videos is that they assume that you're on the uh, 
the discipline end of the stick when it comes to the police. You're you're a, you're a suspect or a potential suspect, but of course, police aren't going to uh, start to do their job unless someone makes a complaint. So, don't um, receive advice not to talk to the police and assume that it applies to you. If um, if someone's committed a wrong against you, sometimes it's a very good idea to go to the police to um, complain about someone. As I say, especially if it's one of those cases where someone has committed a wrong against you and maybe it amounts to a crime, maybe it just amounts to a civil cause of action, but if the um, police take it on and then they prove the wrongdoing to that, that higher threshold and Really, at the heart of the case, it's all about getting your money back. So what could I be talking about? Um, Fraud in an employment context is one of these kinds of things. Um, You can have uh, joint ventures, business ventures, where one of the partners has run off with all the money. That's another one of those kinds of situations where, yeah, you could say a crime has been committed, um, but it kind of depends on which police staff member you have to raise the thing with on the day that you go into the station. Because one might look at it or or hear your case and say, oh, hold on, this is a civil matter. We're, uh, you know, might say it under his breath, we're too busy (laughs) with real crime. Uh, We don't care about your money. You go go to the courts yourself and um, bring on this, this civil case. But uh, another one might say, yikes, this is fraud, heinous, money-grubbing fraud. Yes, and then they'll open a case and start an investigation, uh, prosecute, and if they succeed, uh, then you might well get uh, an order for reparation without barely having to lift a finger in the whole case or or spend any money on expensive lawyers like me. (laughs) Sorry, <laughs> reflex. Um, uh, so, yeah, going to the, the police to report some kind of uh, fraudulent crime could save you a, a, a whole bucket of money if they decide to take on the case. Um, so talking to the police if you're a victim, very good idea. I know some very, very good criminals. Ooh, Getting metaphysical for the second time. Um, I <laughs> metaphysical, no, metaethical maybe. Um, I know of some uh, good criminals. I don't know committed criminals. They will still go to the police when things really start to get rough for them. And you kind of think, well, I mean, I mean, you know, you're going into this world of drugs and crime and at violence and at, at cutthroat, double-crossing, dodgy dealing. And then things get a little bit hot for you and you go running to the police. Oh, man, those cases. You spend so much of the trial tiptoeing around how these people made their money, how they ended up knowing maybe people who came to the door demanding money or... <laughs> going through the window demanding money. Um, I think the jury gets a pretty good idea of uh, of 
how they lived their lifestyle during the case. You know, you see the, the crime photos of the house with, I don't know, stereos strewn throughout the living room. You know, and amongst all the broken glass from where the offenders come through, nobody really knows. The victims say nobody really knows why they they smashed into the house demanding money and something else. And if the uh, if the defendants take the stand, that's something else. It will be drugs. But not always, I suppose. Where was I going with this? Talking to the police? Oh, yeah, that's right. Talking to the police, if you're a victim, can make a lot of sense. Not talking to the police, if you are a suspect or an offender, also makes a lot of sense. And uh, the reason for that is that you can very seldom talk your way out of trouble in a police interview. Um, A lot of the time, you might give some innocence-sounding comments to the police. Um, Or so it may seem at the the time. Innocent-sounding comments like, uh, I don't know, a violence case at a party. Well, yeah, I was at the party. I didn't see anything or anyone. I wasn't there to fight and I left early you might think okay well you know he's disputing identity in that um in that particular case and saying it wasn't him that uh, was involved in any violence there okay well that all sounds fair enough but um underpinning it all is this admission that yes this person was at the party okay so, in making that admission, the person might not have known that the police were really struggling at the time, in this hypothetical, really struggling at the time to actually put this person at the party. Um, and then this person, in speaking to the police, just uh, admits it then and there. Or, in speaking to the police, the person admits something not to the um, not to the crime that they're actually being interviewed about, but something else. Say, um, the person says, uh, wasn't at the party, wrong move, but says, wasn't at the party. Uh, instead, they were out on the other side of town. How can they be so sure? Well, on that particular night... Um, a very eventful thing happened for this person. And this is why he can say unequivocally he was on the other side of town. Okay, well, what is this thing that happened? Um, For the first time in 10 years of driving, the guy was parallel parking his car on the side of the road. And, oh, goodness gracious, for some strange reason, he, um, he curbed his wheel of his car. You know, scratched the uh, the rim up and down the um, the curb there. It made a big scratch in it. It's one of those nice uh, mag wheel rims. And he, and he parks, he hears the scratch, he gets out and he looks at it and he swears profusely, really loud. You know, the kind of things that you might say in that sort of situation. But he's really, really hacked off about himself and his 
lousy driving performance and um, and then goes about his day from there but you know he, he says to the investigator and that's that's what happened and that's uh, and that's how I can remember that on the night in question I was somewhere else parking my car um, swearing at it oh okay um, says the investigator so whereabouts exactly were you parking your car oh on this on the street okay and when you were swearing were you inside your car or were you outside your car oh I was outside the car are we on the street yes I was and um, and the street is such and such a name and the the investigator looks it up he goes oh yeah well you know that's um, that is a, a legal public road and you know what You've just committed the crime of careless driving on a public road. Because, <laughs> because oh, that's a completely normal thing that happens. You know, when you're learning to drive or something like that. It's a completely understandable kind of thing. It happens every day. Nobody ever gets prosecuted for you know, careless driving in that way. It's usually, um, you know, a, 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 the charge is usually tied to some sort of uh, danger to public but in New Zealand at least the charge of careless driving is uh, or the, the technical ingredients just involve being on a public road and then um, committing driving that what is it falls short of the uh, standards reasonably expected of a motor vehicle user something like that anyway uh, it's a very very um, broad charge and it really is just to do with being in control of a motor vehicle on a public road and um you know falling short in some way and just um in that way that you can fall short is not specified so yeah curbing your car i mean you're driving into an obstacle albeit it's the curb you could, um, I think, very arguably have made out the technical definition of the charge. Oops, just admitted to that. And then um, you get out, <laughs> you get out of your car and you swear. Yeah, you swear in public. There's actually a charge in New Zealand under the Summary Offences Act of offensive language in a public place. I'm, I'm kind of butchering the technical. Uh, description but it's broadly you know if you're swearing in public and someone i think it's uh, someone has to hear you oh no it <laughs> someone has to potentially hear you you know so it's a public place uh say it's a you know a public street a suburban street houses it around and you're going off your nut there and and um swearing profusely at at your damaged wheel your damaged rim on your car um yeah, there too, you could have technically made out the definition of the charge and you just sort of casually admitted that to the investigator without really realising what you're saying because these are very, very normal and everyday experiences, I think, in, in most English-speaking countries. According to the television that I've been watching, um, certainly in New Zealand, certainly where I live in New Zealand, <laughs> it could have been me. It could have been me. Um, so, uh, speaking to a police officer about a crime 
when they're in that mindset of looking to charge you with something, uh, even if you're trying to give some kind of exculpatory explanation or narrative, some kind of excuse, um, you might end up just getting charged either with the, the crime that was intended. You could potentially um, get charged with something else. Um, I would be very, very reluctant to advise any client to uh, make a statement to police because it's too easy to uh, give them evidence that they need, rightly or wrongly, to bring a prosecution against you. And it really is that wrongful prosecution uh, scenario that um, that we're concerned with here. You know, you, you, I'm not trying to give uh, inside information about how to beat the justice system or anything like that. The idea is that you um, you avoid being in a situation where you have to have a fight through the court system just to get back to to zero, essentially. You know, get back to the situation that you were in before, uh, for example, being charged with something. E- even a, a minor conviction can have very long-term consequences, especially in this uh, sort of cancel culture atmosphere that I I think many people in many jurisdictions are in. I'm not too sure if it's all that prevalent here in New Zealand. Certainly if you get a criminal conviction and you are a public figure, then you may well have um, a difficulty maintaining your status here in New Zealand. I think in uh, places like America, there's a a different kind of atmosphere because employees seem to be able to be fired so easily. Certainly in New Zealand, um, Australia as well, there are some pretty good employment protection uh, provisions and legislation. I'll just speak to to New Zealand law anyway, where... uh, Employers have to be fair and reasonable. They have to fire you for good reason if they're going to fire you. They can uh, take another process to get rid of you called redundancy, and that's when you know there's some restructure or downturn in business and they just can't justify keeping you on in the role. That's a different thing, but uh, that's not firing someone uh, for cause, I think is the American expression. But... Um, Yeah, certainly here in New Zealand, employers are expected, essentially, to act like judges. Um, And what do I mean by that? I mean doing natural justice to an employee in the course of uh, an employment investigation that ultimately leads to a decision being made. That means they have to be fair and impartial. They can't just uh, jump to conclusions. They have to hear both sides to a story as well. They can't just um, <laughs> they can't just uh, hear from a, a complainant. Um, oh, prop baby's awake. Almost forgot about prop baby. Um, 
and my arms are getting tired actually, so I better start wrapping this up. But um, certainly in New Zealand, employers can't just, uh, I don't know, believe women. There's an idea. You, you remember that, um, there was that uh, a few years ago, there was that kind of cancel culture slogan, believe women. And I'm not saying don't believe women. Of course not. Um, but just don't believe them absolutely blindly without testing the evidence. And testing the evidence um, can involve hearing from the other side. And certainly employers in New Zealand are required to hear the other side of the story before making a decision. And if they don't hear from the person whose you know, job's on the line um, and they just fire them without any kind of uh, investigation, meeting, uh, weighing up of evidence and then issuing a hopefully impartial decision. I don't know how impartial you can really be as an employer when you you know you know everybody involved over the years you would have formed certain views of their uh, their character and so forth. But anyway, being as impartial as you can be, the employers in, uh, expected to come to a uh, a reasonable decision and if they don't it's immediately a uh, breach of the New Zealand employment law. What does that mean? It means that immediately the employee who's been terminated has a good case to demand financial compensation and possibly reinstatement to their employment position. Um, which can <laughs> which can just be it can just really reflect really badly on the um, decision maker involved. If, that, if that's a sort of mid-level manager, you know, who himself has, or herself, or itself, their self, has to answer to, um, I don't want to get cancelled here, <laughs> talking about talking about cancel culture. Jeez. Um, uh, that person, that mid-level manager who has to answer further up the chain they make a mistake that's costly for the company. And also, um, they make a mistake that's really obvious and having, you know, gotten rid of someone and then a few months later, they're <laughs> back showing up to work with a great big grin on their face. I mean, that can spawn its own employment investigation. These decision makers, as I say, they're often um, required to act kind of like judges. And um, what does that mean? It means that um, I suppose they're expected to kind of have the uh, the wisdom of King Solomon. That's what that's what's often said of the good judges. Oh, they're you know fair, just, and wise as Solomon. Now, who's King Solomon? That's a biblical reference. It's not just a biblical reference, actually, because King Solomon features in Jewish scripture as well as the Quran because it's he's an Old Testament king. And uh, what was his thing? That's right, that's right. So there's this uh, recounting of a story, an anecdote to demonstrate the wisdom of King Solomon and there was these uh, there were these two women. Both had babies. Prop baby. Um both had babies. Let's have a think. That's right. One of the women, and I don't know how 
this came to be known, but hey, you know, it's in the Bible. Um, one of the women, I think, rolls onto her baby in the night and, and um, tragically, uh, I think, suffocates it and it dies. Anyway, the baby dies somehow. And uh, out of desperation and grief, she, she steals another woman's baby and um, claims it as her own. And of course, the other woman's not having any of that. So there's a dispute. And rather than getting lawyers, these women act for themselves in this proceeding, which comes before King Solomon as king and judge to determine. And what did he say? He hears from both women, hearing both sides, natural justice, just like the employers should be doing. Um, He hears from both women and he can't make up his mind. He can't determine who is the true mother. Now, the Bible is silent on... um, whether or not the, the standard of proof was uh, beyond reasonable doubt or, or balance of probabilities. But it seems like he was acting on a sort of balance of probabilities kind of scenario. So what does he say? He says, oh, well, look, I can't determine this. We'll just have to cut the baby in half. and One, for, one half for uh, one woman, one half for the other. Now, one of the women sort of silently, stoically accepts this uh, judgment from the king. And the other woman says, oh no, we can't have that. Stop, stop, please. Please keep the baby alive. Just give it give it to the other woman. Just uh, keep it alive. And King Solomon, in his wisdom, says, aha, that woman there, the one who wants to keep the baby alive, that is the true mother. She can have both halves of the baby. No, she can have, she can have the whole baby. <laughs> She can have the baby. Um, and uh, yeah, that's all I really remember about King Solomon, other than that I think that he might just be the reason why there's so many statues of Buddha. Why is that, man? Well, conspiracy theory. King Solomon, he just booked all these spots throughout the major religions. He's in the Bible. He's in Jewish scripture. He's also in the Quran. I don't know if Buddha was able to really compete with that. So he had to advertise, right? I mean, King Solomon, you don't see many statues of King Solomon. There's statues of the Buddha everywhere. I don't know. I think it was the original uh, religion marketing guru. Not just for his wisdom, but also for his marketing. Yeah, I'm rambling. It's getting late. My arms are getting tired. I better end things there. What have I got to say in the end of the podcast? Uh, I wrote it down because it's so important. Don't forget to ask me some questions. <laughs> yeah, okay, so the email to ask some real questions for me to talk about is ask at questions.legal. Look forward to hearing from you, and I'll talk to you soon.